Well, good morning. I'm Stephen. I'm the pastor here, and uh, I want to invite you to look into your bulletins. We're looking at some verses in the book of Romans um, as we continue on in this series, we interrupt this religious story. But I want to start, before we look at these verses, I want to just admit, and let's put it out on the table together, right, in front of all of our friends. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're going to love what I'm about to say. Um, because one of the things that most people hate about Christianity is people who say they're Christians, but don't look at all like Jesus. Right? Gandhi even said, I would have become a Christian if I ever met one. Ah, ouch. Um, there are sometimes people who are the strongest defenders of God's forgiveness and his grace, and they are the people who, it's like they're defending it so badly because that's all they got. <laughs> all they have is that if God doesn't forgive me, I'm in deep trouble because there is no difference in my life. I don't look like Jesus, I don't act like Jesus, I don't talk like Jesus, and frankly, if you hold me down to I don't really want to be like Jesus, but I definitely want to be forgiven. I want to have a ticket to heaven when I, when, I'm, when I die. I want to make sure everything's okay with the man upstairs, but don't bug me about my life here. These kinds of people um, sometimes are in our hearts. Sometimes it's Stephen. Sometimes it's his old self. Uh, but there are people like this where nothing is different in their lives. Nothing has changed. They just claim that they're forgiven, and so no change is necessary. And you need to realize this is not a new problem. Okay, this problem was also around in a different form in the first century, 2,000 years ago. The Jews that were in the world back then had a similar issue. Um, they were convinced they were better than everyone else. They were convinced they sort of had this sort of blank forgiveness check that they could draw, or maybe a bank account that was inexhaustible, that they could draw on no matter what they did, no matter, because they had because they had Abraham as their ancestor. And they knew that God spoke to Abraham, their ancestor. And God gave this law, these commands to Moses on Mount Sinai a long, long time ago. And they lived and they talked and they acted like as long as they had the commands of God, they were better than everyone else. That's how they were. And so this is like Christians today saying they're going to be blessed, they're going to be in heaven someday because they call themselves Christians. And look, I got a Bible on my shelf at home. Every time I go on a trip, I make sure I have a Bible in my room. That's a joke about the Gideons. Um, thank you. Appreciate that. Not as funny as Mike, so worse, less than him. If he's here, I'm okay. So... But these people, you wouldn't know that they were Christian or had, or even had the Bible by looking at their life, right? And this is what I would call fake religion, where we've got fake news that is plaguing us from both sides of the aisle. We've got fake religion back then and here today as well. It's religion that's in name only, and there's nothing real there. And the Bible interrupts the story of fake religion, Okay, the Bible is more opposed to fake religion than you are. As frustrated as you are, how do you think God feels about it? How do you think God feels about people who are claiming to be better than everybody else, claiming to be forgiven, and they don't care a lick about him? How do you think God feels? I mean, if you're part of the church, sometimes you feel like, you know, when you go to your family reunion, you kind of have that uncle or that cousin, and you kind of sort of wish he wasn't part of the family, but you kind of have to embrace him because he is part of the family. 
I mean, I can't tell you how often I have to apologize to people because of the church, because we deserve to be criticized. We deserve to be ridiculed because there are people who claim the name of Jesus, who claim to be Christians and then live in ways that are just awful. And how do you think God feels to watch his reputation destroyed and besmirched? We're going to see that a little bit later. Um, Not today, but I think next week we're going to look at that specifically where God is just lamenting and brokenhearted. Um, And Jesus actually interrupts this kind of fake religion. So we're going to start, even before looking at Romans, look at the words of Jesus himself. He always was confronting the religious leaders of his day, and he had harsh words for them. At one point, he's in this argument with them, and they're like, yeah, well, Abraham's our father. And Jesus says, actually, no, Abraham's not your father. In John 8, 44, Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil. This is Jesus talking. Jesus looks at these people and says, you guys are just absolutely hypocrites. You're terrible. You're awful. You are not from Abraham. You have nothing to do with Abraham. You're of your father, the devil. And your will is to do the devil's desires, your father's desires. And so Jesus interrupts this religious story, but Romans also interrupts fake religion. It confronts people who are fake with, and it gives a strong teaching about the future day of judgment. Okay, so we're going to read Romans 2, verses 6 through 16 together. It's in your bulletin. It's going to be up on the screen. Um, And it says this, friends, this is God's word. He inspired this so that you could hear it today. He's got something to say to you from these verses, and I think it's going to change your life. This has radically changed my life in a brand new way in the last four weeks as I began to prepare for this message. But he says here, but... Verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There'll be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. It's important to understand that this passage about the last day is part of Paul's good news. This is part of the gospel that Paul preached And this good news, this is that it it disrupts and it interrupts the story of people who want to claim religion, but they're fake. 
their life has no demonstrable difference. Right? They're Christian in name only. And so this passage confronts us to make sure that we today are genuine in our faith and genuine in our lives by telling us about the coming judgment. Okay? So there is a day coming of judgment. Um, it says in verse 5 that we looked at, it says the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 16 in your bulletin says, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And Paul is confronting a wrong understanding of the Jews and the Jewish Christians of his day. Okay, they had, they, they had a different idea of what God's judgment would look like. Okay, they believed, it was kind of simple if you were a Jew at the time, they believed, we'll show the next slide, they, um, they believed that the Jews were going to get eternal life and the Greeks, which meant everyone else, was going to be condemned by God's wrath. Okay, and this is what fake religion says. And God interrupts that story to say something very different and to confront people who are religious in name only. The verses here, from verses 6 to 16, paint a very different picture, and they confront us. They sort of shake us to wake us up a little bit. They say that final judgment is not going to be based on religion or on Jewish nationality. And so for us today, judgment won't be based on whether you merely call yourself a Christian. Okay, it's not based on whether you just went to church or you just had a Bible somewhere it's on your phone, right? Oh man, it's right here. I carry the Bible with me all the time. Oh yeah, really? When did you look at it last? Well, it's been a while. So this passage teaches us that at the end of time, on the end, on the day of judgment, God is going to look at our lives. And look what verse 6 says. It says he's going to render to us according to our works. According to our works. Like, look at it there. It's what it says. He will render to each one according to his works. And so, instead of it being like a Jew versus Greek kind of thing, eternal life is going to go to people who have a certain kind of life. Okay? And so, eternal life is going to go to people who have a certain kind of life in the present. And if this is shaking and jarring for you, just you got to see that this is what these verses are teaching. Okay, so before you have objections, let's, let's look at the verses. Okay, Paul says here that eternal life is going to go to those whose life is characterized by doing good. Right? Their, their lives, in their lives, they will seek, verse 7, they'll seek for glory and honor and immortality. Right? Their lives will be characterized by patience in well-doing. And in verse 13, it says, not the hearers of the law who are right before God, but it's the doers of the law who will be justified. They're the ones who are going to be declared right before God. And the reward for this kind of life in the present is eternal life. Verse 7. Right? To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he, God, will give eternal life. Verse 10 says they're going to receive glory and honor and peace, whether they are Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians. 
So whether they're Jews or Greeks, if they're Christian and this is what their life is characterized by, this is the reward that they will get. Now, on the other hand, there are other people who are described as those who are going to receive God's wrath. Okay, they're going to receive the opposite fate. Um, fake religion says that these are all the people who are outside of our practices. They're outside of our self-righteousness. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible describes people as doing evil. Right? Verse 8 says that they are self-seeking. So these are people who put themselves first. Right? Not God. God's not first. Themselves are first. They're not putting Jesus first. Jesus, who came to actually reveal who God is. Jesus, who came to show us how much God loves the world. Verse 8 says they don't obey the truth of God's word, but instead they obey unrighteousness. And so unrighteousness, in one hand, could just mean anything contrary to what God says. And so they don't want the God who's revealed himself in Jesus. In some ways, this is another form of self-seeking. They're saying, look, I'm not going to let someone else tell me what to do. I'm not going to let somebody else make me do anything. And so what this is, this is you living as though you are the most important person in the world, right? Which in some ways could be that you're making yourself out to be God. And people who do this will receive, verse 8, God's wrath and fury. And the principle here, the principle here is that God has a desire for the world. God made the world to flourish and to thrive, to be filled with joy and celebration, real love, real community, transforming relationships. This was God's design. And God designed us to reflect him and to imitate him. But in our sin, we vandalize God's world. We destroy God's world. We hurt the people that God has made. Ultimately, we disrespect and we dishonor God. And the good news of Jesus is that God's response to us doing that is him coming himself, him sending his son Jesus to, into the world to make everything right again. This is what Jesus came to do. He is fixing the world. And Jesus' efforts to fix the world, his efforts to make everything right again, includes us. Jesus invites us in on the process. He says, look, I have come to bring God's kingdom. I've come to bring life the way it would be if God was fully in charge. And I want to include you in that. I'm not just fixing the world out there. I want to fix the world that's in you. This is why Jesus came. This is what he was doing. And so it gives us a choice. We have two choices. We can either let him include us in his saving work. Right? We can join him. We can join him and let him fix us from the inside out. We can let him forgive us and cleanse us and give us strength to grow and to be different. We can let go of our sin and give it to him because he died for it on the cross. Or if we don't let our sin go, if we continue in our evil, self-seeking ways, God will remove us along with our sin in judgment. That's reality. That's the future. And no sense of fake religion can possibly help us. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, 
if you are still refusing God's authority in your life, then there's nothing you can do to be rescued from this. You're staying in your sin. Verse 9 says, This judgment will fall on every human being who does evil. And that evil includes ignoring the authority of God. It includes uh, disregarding God and His ways. It includes living your own way. Um, And it's true for both Jews and Greeks. And so this is the message of these verses. And I want to spend more time, I want to zoom in. I want to zoom in on one phrase that I think is the most important phrase. It was the most eye-opening phrase for me in this passage. Okay, it's, it's, the, it's the phrase that describes those who are going to receive eternal life. Because when I think about it, right, that's probably the most important thing about this passage. Maybe, I don't know, if you're like me, I'm like, okay, I, I want to be on that side, right? I want to be on the eternal life side. So I want to understand what does this mean to seek for glory and honor and immortality? Right? What is verse 7 describing when it talks about being patient and well-doing? Because if they're the ones that receive eternal life, I want to know this. And I need to admit that honestly, in 27 years of being a Christian, I've never heard anyone describe God's people as those who seek for glory and honor and immortality. I've just, I've never heard this before. I've never heard anybody actually preach on this particular verse in verse 7. I mean, I've heard people talk about this section of verses, but I've never actually had anybody zoom in and describe for me what it means to seek for glory and honor and immortality. I've actually heard the opposite. I've heard that seeking for glory and honor is arrogant. It's destructive, both for the heart, because it tends toward like narcissism, right? There's this view of this. Um, It destroys relationships. And people who want to live forever are usually so full of themselves, they seem like they're part of the problem with the world, not something that God would want to reward with eternal life. So what does verse 7 mean? Well, this verse, this phrase, by itself, those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, this phrase, in this phrase, in these words, is the entire Bible. This phrase, seeking for glory and honor and immortality, we have the entire Bible. Bible. So if you memorize this phrase, you can tell people, I've memorized the message of the entire Bible. And if they ask you, well, how does this phrase contain the message of the entire Bible? Take notes. Here it comes. Here it comes. Glory and honor reaches all the way back into Genesis. And if you've been around our church for any amount of time, you know that the Bible does not begin in Genesis 3 with the fall. Very important. The Bible doesn't begin with bad news. The Bible doesn't begin with us screwing up. The Bible begins with Genesis 1, right? comes before chapter 3, chapter 1. It begins with Genesis 1 and 2. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we see the creation and the design of God with human beings. And so let me just show you Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. It says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful 
and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And in a commentary, gosh, thousands of years later, in the book of Psalms from the Old Testament, in Psalm 8, there's someone who's reflecting on what God meant in Genesis 1. He says this, he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, So he's looking back at creation, right? He's looking at all the things God has made. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? He's like, God, who are we? We're so tiny. We're these little tiny specks on this little tiny speck of dust in this gigantic universe. How in the world do you care for us? And then he says in verse five, he says, yet you have made him, man, male and female, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. And what we see here is that the psalmist is like, I can't believe this. We're so small. We're so tiny. God shouldn't even know we exist, and yet he does. And it's not just that he knows that we exist, but he has put us just a little bit lower than the angels. We have been exalted to this incredibly high position. God has given us, he's he's given us authority over the entire world. He's given us authority over the entire creation. He made us in his image, and he crowned us with glory and honor. When the psalmist is trying to describe what it's like to be made in God's image, he says we are filled, we are covered, we are crowned with glory and honor. That God has made us glorious and honorable above everything else on earth. And he's called us to exercise leadership and authority over his world. And so we are called to lead the world in a way that images God. This is our purpose. This is our design. We're called to image God in the way that we lead the world, the way we have authority. And so we're supposed to reflect God's creativity. We're supposed to reflect his care, his grace, and his love. And God gave Adam and Eve, really gave them two things. Gave them a lot of other things, actually, but we can sum it to two things. He gave them a garden and a relationship. Right? He gave them to each other, gave each to each other, and he gave them a garden. And so in some way, this is what all of life is. All of life. All of your life is gardens and relationships. Okay? Stretch with me a little bit, right? If you're familiar with the creation story, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, the Garden of Eden, I get that. Relationship, Adam and Eve were married. Okay, that's cool. Um, All right, so all of life, though, your life and mine, all of life is gardens and relationships, What do I mean? Well, gardens, I'm going to say, are our responsibilities. Okay, it's the stuff that we have to get done. And relationships are the people that we care for. Okay, so what are your gardens? Think about this. It's your work. It's your home. It's your schedule. It's your responsibilities, right? These are the tasks, the work efforts, the chores that order your life. Okay, so you want to think about what those things are. What are the gardens in your life? And then relationships, right? Who are the, these are the people that we care for. Who are the most important relationships in your life? Right, I tend to think about them as family members, friends, coworkers, and neighbors. I think that covers everybody. 
maybe colleagues, if they're like a work relationship that's not quite friendship, but I don't work with them, or so they're not co-workers technically, so you can throw in colleagues too, but family members, friends, co-workers, and neighbors. Um, what God is saying to us by making us in his image, by giving us responsibility to have dominion, he's saying glory and honor is to characterize all of your gardening and all of your relationships. Okay, everything that you do, everywhere that you go, should be characterized by, by glory and honor. Right? This, is, this, this is the same. It's another way to say be fruitful and multiply. And so having glory and honor means being someone who creates multiplying life. Right? If you had a garden, a glorious and honorable gardener would produce plants that would bear fruit. The plants that would look beautiful, plants that would that would be pleasing. I uh, probably shouldn't say that. Um, plants that, um, yeah, that would feed you, that would look beautiful, that you could use, that would adorn the the space. Um, and so you want to be someone in the responsibilities that you have, who again creates multiplying life. And so you want to make things. Some of you make things in your gardens. Some of you keep things running right in your gardens. Some of you fix things that are broken in your gardens. You want to do this with excellence and integrity, and you will be the image of God. When you do work that is excellent, you will image God. You will show and shine glory and honor. I don't know how many of you know this, but two days ago, the city of San Diego proclaimed that March 17th, 2017, is officially Fella F. Bowen's Day. It's amazing. Some of you don't know who Fella F. Bowen's is. You're like, why are they clapping? Uh, probably, they probably know somebody that I don't know. Fella F. Bowen's is a member of our church, and she has been the president and CEO of the San Diego airport, and she just retired. And so in a retirement celebration, the city of San Diego declared last Friday Fella F. Bowen's Day, and they described the contribution that Fella has made to the city of San Diego and to the airport, and they described the incredible excellence of her work. They described the impact, the economic impact of the airport and how much it has benefited San Diego. And under her leadership, the way that the airport has grown in both excellence, in efficiency, in beauty. And as I'm listening to it, I'm thinking, wow, Fella has amazingly tended her garden. Her work has been a garden, and it is glorious and honorable. Someone else got up and said, you know what? Even though all those accomplishments that were just named about what Fella has done are truly fantastic, let me tell you that I think her most lasting legacy is her devotion to the employees and the customers of the airport. And it's how she's treated her devotion to her staff her devotion to people and to making sure that that filters through to people that come in and use the airport. And I'm thinking, wow, fella. I mean, 
It's gardens and relationships. And Stella is leaving a legacy. She has shined the glory and the honor of God in her work. And so how you take care of things is an opportunity to show glory and honor. And I want to say this really, really clearly because some of you are not people people, right? Some of you are more task-oriented folks. I'm not going to say introvert versus extrovert because that's not true because there's a lot of introverts that are people people. They just get tired when they're with people. That doesn't make them not people people, right? They just get tired. Like extroverts get energized when they're with people. And so you can have introverts and extroverts who are people people, but there are other kinds of people in the world who are more task-oriented people, right? They're more get-things-done kind of people. And I want you to know that you are just as much in the image of God as all the people people that sometimes you're made to feel guilty like you're not. That makes sense? You're with me. Okay. So for those of you who are task-oriented, process-oriented, get-things-done-oriented, you know what? When you do those things with excellence, when you do those things with integrity, when you do those things before the face of God, because what you're doing reflects his faithfulness, his steadfastness, his dependability, his reliability, his integrity, his joy to see things running right, you are imaging God and you are shining the glory and the honor of God. Man, that's what God's designed you for. This is what it means to seek for glory and honor. This is what we were made for. This is what God calls us to. This is the life that God is inviting us into or to return to, where what we do makes a difference because what we do demonstrates who he is, shows a little picture of what God is like. And then for those of you who are people, people, You know this already to some degree, but we're called to be a blessing to others, right? In relationships, we're supposed to encourage people, comfort people, confront people, love people, honor people, serve people, and we're to cultivate life in others. I really like the garden image, even with people, because sometimes we have relationships and they're kind of like a garden, right? There's weeds, there's brambles, there's stuff that needs to get pulled out, but we need to fertilize that with love and with caring words and with with time spent together and commitment. We want to cultivate life in others. That's what the image of God does. Everywhere it goes, it tries to bring forth teeming life. When you read Genesis 1, everything God made seems to be able to multiply itself and make more of it. That's God's design. And so God wants you to multiply, teeming, multiplying life in other people. Let people know that they're loved by God, they're cared for by Jesus. Help people know how they can draw closer to him. And so we're to help others experience God more in their lives, more of his presence. And in this, we make disciples of Jesus. And so God made us to have power, to be strong. He wants us to seek after this. And so glory and honor is what is right about you. Glory and honor is the stuff that people, when they remember you, they smile about it. It's when you show up in a situation or in a particular thing and you're doing your thing and everyone else is excited because you're there, right? That's your glory and your honor. Glory and honor, I mean, these are ways that your life images the presence of God. And so here's one definition. I feel like all these definitions don't communicate the exuberant 
like just teeming life understanding of God's design for human beings. I mean, he put them in this little garden, but he said, gosh, the whole world is yours. Go after it. Make a whole lot of babies and go fill the earth. Name all the animals. Find everything in it that I've ever put there. Make stuff. Build bridges and cars and airplanes and space travel. Like the whole universe is at your disposal. Like this is what God was doing. And Adam and Eve and their descendants were going to be, they were supposed to be about like, well, all right, okay, I'll take care of the people, you take care of the stuff, all right, let's go do this together, right? We can't do this, no, none of us can do this by ourselves. We need different kinds of people. We need to fill this world with a diverse group of folks that can make this happen, that can make the entire creation into a place that gives God glory. All right, so... That's the emotive version. Here's the written version. <laughs> um, next slide. Seeking glory and honor is living as someone created and saved to be the image of God and Jesus Christ. Powerful, servant leading, one who makes others flourish. Strong, faithful, understanding, courageous, and vulnerable. Friends, this is what God's design is for us. This is his design in the beginning and it's still his design. And this is what he wants us to be seeking in our lives. This is glory. This is honor. And this is also immortality. This is immortality. I'll tell you why this is immortality um, in just a moment. In just a moment. But first, like this is a standard, at least for me, I get excited when I think about this. And I get excited about a lot of things, but I get really excited about this. Um, and it could be my personality, it could be my disposition that I just tend to get excited. But for me, this kind of life, like sign me up for this. Because um, the problem is, the problem is that like I, I see this and I think, yeah, that's the life I want to live. That's the life I know that I should be living. That's the life I should be aiming for. That's the stuff I should be seeking after. And whether it's aiming at getting things done and task-oriented stuff or aiming at people and helping them get to this, right? Either way, either way, like this is the life that is truly meaningful. This is a life that's truly impactful. This is the life that actually, man, like, this is God's design. There's happiness here. There's security here. There's assurance here. There's significance here. And this is why sin is so messed up. Okay, this is why sin is so messed up. This is why the fall is such a tragedy. Because sin is everything that's less than this. Like, sin isn't just breaking God's rules. But sin is failing to be this. Sin is failing to be the glorious and honorable creature that God has made you to be. You were, like God, I mean, what I want you to see is that God wants so much more for your life than you do. I mean, think about this. Think about what we chase after. And we wonder why our gardens are filled with brambles and weeds and isn't growing a whole lot of stuff. It's because what are we seeking after? 
There's an entire book of the Bible that talks about this dilemma. Um, it's the book of Ecclesiastes. And the book of Ecclesiastes, it basically says that life under the sun, which means life without heaven, okay, life without the perspective of heaven, ends up being vapor. Now, vapor's good, right? It can cool you off on a hot day. It can kind of tiny a little bit, maybe quench a little bit of thirst. But vapor lasts like three seconds, and then it's gone. And it does not, and it cannot lastingly satisfy or lastingly make a difference. And friends, this, uh, like this is what we are doing with our lives. Like we're chasing after vapor. It's, it's, it's vain, like not in the vanity kind of sense, although sometimes it is, but like it's, it's just, it's empty. It's gonna, like we're chasing after stuff and this is why like we grab for it and sometimes we actually get what we think we want that's gonna make us happy and we're like, oh, is that all there is? And so what's important for us to understand, like this is why sin is so bad. This is why Paul says in the next chapter that sin is falling short of the glory of God I mean, here's another definition. Sin is every thought, word, and deed that is less than glory and honor. Anything less. Sin is you selling yourself short. This is you relinquishing and letting go of any influence that you're going to have for God. This is you not participating with God and making the world the way he wants it to be. This is us being self-seeking. This is us advantaging ourselves to the disadvantaging of others, right? Unrighteousness and sin is not just wrong, but it's destructive. It's destructive to us. It's destructive to our relationship with God. It's destructive to God's world. And so in these ways, we destroy the image of God in ourselves. We suppress God's glory and his honor. Could I just say this is why advertising is so evil? Sorry, not all advertising, but most advertising, because it lies to us. Advertising comes and says, oh, I know that you're feeling empty. I know that you feel like you're chasing after vapor. I know that you don't know what it is that's going to make you happy. But guess what? If you buy this for $34.99, you'll be happy. You'll truly be glorious if you have this car or this item of clothing or this phone or this whatever, and it's all vapor. I'm telling you, it's vapor. Gosh, and yet we chase after it. It's so evil, it lies to us. And I got to tell you, friends, that Jesus has come not only to interrupt the story about fake religion, but Jesus has come to disrupt the vapor stories of our lives that so many of us are living in. Jesus has come to make all things new. Jesus came and he lived a life seeking glory and honor. And on the cross, Jesus actually took God's fury and his wrath for our sins. Jesus took our vapor, meaningless, empty, pointless, impactless lives. Jesus took our sin and our selfishness onto himself. Jesus took all of the evil that we have done onto himself. And in his resurrection, Jesus brought immortality to earth. 
God has always been and always will be. God is immortal, and yet Jesus brought immortality to earth in his resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is proof that his kind of life will last forever. If you follow Jesus, you will live forever. You will begin to live now in ways that will last forever. Jesus writes, verse 15 says, that Jesus will write the law of God on your heart. And that means that not only will he forgive your sins, not only will he forgive the ways that you have fallen short of glory and honor, but Jesus will write his law on your heart, which means he will give you his Holy Spirit and he will put the strength in you to want to obey and to be able to obey. Jesus gives us both cleansing and strength. When you believe in Jesus, he gives you new life from the dead. 2 Corinthians 3.18, I think we have a slide for this. It says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. It's not hidden anymore. God's not hidden anymore. The veil's removed. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. You can have freedom from sin, freedom from meaninglessness, freedom from impotence. Right, verse 18, how do we get this? Well, this is it. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so, how do you grow in glory? It's by beholding the glorious one. As you behold Jesus, you become like him. As you see him when you read the Bible, as you see him here in church, as he's proclaimed before you, as he is remembered in the songs, in the music, in the sermon, as you're going to see him here at the table, right? If you behold him, if you remember him every day, you become more like him. When you think about what he is like and what his glory would look like in your life, in your situations, when you see him interacting in your gardens and in your relationships, when you can see how Jesus would treat the people around you and how Jesus would go about your work, you begin to be changed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Man, I wish I had time. We have so many people who are part of our church who are living examples of this. Um, We have people who have had the glory of the Lord envelop their lives and change who they are. That's one level of glory. But then as that glory begins to change and change and change them, they begin to change the people around them. They begin to have another influence. They begin to have influence on folks around them. And that's the next level of glory, right? The first level is for you. And the second level is you for others. And this again is how we be fruitful and multiply. How we fill the earth with people who love Jesus. All right, we got to bring this to a close. Um, let's talk about Lent. Let's talk about Lent. We've got to give you something to do this week. How can we practice this? Okay, Lent is a season of denial and devotion. Denying ourselves something each week 
as we seek to put the Bible into practice in our lives, experiencing a closer relationship with Jesus. And so, denial and devotion. First, denial. Join me this week. I'm in this too, in denying the empty life. Deny the meaningless life. I think I'm going to carry around a water bottle, like a spray bottle this week. And just every so often, I'm just going to spray. I'm just going to watch the vapor disappear. To remind myself how easy it is for me to get distracted by stuff that doesn't matter. So join me. Deny the empty life, but seek a life of glory and honor and immortality. Doing good for Jesus' sake. Like, let's do this together. And then devotion. Devote yourself to Jesus. Gaze at his glory and honor and immortality at the start of every day. Today, I'm sorry, tomorrow morning when you wake up, before you check social media on your phone, right? I know what it's like. You just reach over and it's like, all right, you got any email messages? Right? Before you do that, just say, Jesus, you are glorious, you are honorable, and you are living forever. I want to be like you today. Please help me. Could you devote yourself to Jesus like that this week? And let's see what God does. I know that there are some of you who are here who aren't Christians. So in some ways you get a little bit of a pass because we're not talking specifically to you. We're talking to Christians. But this definitely applies. Isn't this a better life than what you're aiming for? Like, isn't this so much better than what you're chasing after? Man, trust Jesus. Confess your sins and follow him and you will get from Jesus this gift of a life that will have impact and significance and it'll last forever. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for a glorious and an honorable life. Thank you for inviting us into this. Oh, we confess that we chase after so much stuff that's just worthless. Forgive us. Forgive us. And help us to become multiplying life producers. Help us to become glorious and honorable. Help us to become, by your presence in us, people who love others, people who bless others, and people who care for the systems and the structures and get the things done that need to get done so that people can flourish. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for loving us. Make us your glorious and honorable and immortal people. Amen.